This episode is brought to you by Time to Play. Explore your capacity for play to reconnect, reignite, and rejuvenate. An online on-demand workshop by Dawn Sarah. To grab the workshop, which is now pre-enrolling, head to sexgetsreal.com slash EP202 for episode 202 and click the link. You're listening to You're listening to You're listening to You're listening to Sex Gets Real. Sex Gets Real. Sex Gets Real. Sex Gets Real with, with Don Sarah. With Don Sarah. Thanks. Bye. Hey you, welcome to this week's episode of Sex Gets Real. I am your host, Dawn Sarah. Joining me this week is Bianca Palmazano, who is this incredible sex educator who also works to train doctors, nurses, and other medical professionals to be more sex positive, inclusive, to understand better trans issues and gender issues. Really important work in the world. But before we get to my chat with Bianca, I want to remind you that there are still seats up for grabs for the live taping of Sex Gets Real that we are doing to celebrate episode 200. So if you are available on March 22nd at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, and you want to join in the fun, there is going to be a group taping where you can join me, we can talk, I'll answer questions live, and it will end up being one of the episodes of Sex Gets Real. So if you want to join in and put your name in the hat for a potential spot, just click on the link in the show notes and or head to sexgetsreal.com slash EP202. The link is there and I would love to see you. Speaking of super rad things, don't forget that I'm also live streaming every single Wednesday at O School. And their URL is o.school. It's free online sex education streaming every single night. Every single night. And every Wednesday, I do Pop Culture Undressed. We have talked about Fifty Shades of Grey, Twilight, John Hughes 80s films, Magic Mike XXL. It is a total blast. If you have any television shows, movies, characters, books that you'd love to geek out on with me, be sure to hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Dawn underscore Sarah to let me know what you'd like to see on Pop Culture Undressed. This week's episode includes a listener question from someone who got drunk and then sexually violated a partner. I do offer a warning before we read the question and the scenario out loud. It's towards the end of the episode. Please do care for yourself around that. I also want to let you know that Bianca and I record a really fun Patreon chat. So if you support the show at $3 or above, you can get access to all of the weekly bonus content that's being put out. Bianca and I rage against the orgasm gap. Why for women, dissatisfying sex often includes pain and suffering and dissatisfying sex for men generally includes just not being that into it. We also talk about all the different kinds of orgasms that we experience and how that ties to the medical treatment that we get. It's a really interesting, uh, dynamic conversation. So be sure to check that out. You can support the show at patreon.com slash sex gets real. 
So, Bianca Palmisano is here this week. Bianca is a sex educator, medical consultant, and the owner of Intimate Health Consulting. She specializes in training healthcare providers around issues of sexual health, as well as LGBT, sex worker, and sexual assault survivor competency. Palmisano is the primary author of Safer Sex for Trans Bodies, an outreach and education guide for the trans community sponsored by Whitman Walker Health and the Human Rights Campaign, or HRC. She has been a guest lecturer at George Washington University, Johns Hopkins, and the University of Chicago. So let's find out how to advocate for ourselves. Let's find out how to get better health care. Let's find out what we should do when a doctor mistreats us or makes us do too much labor. And then we'll roll around in a couple of your questions. So here we are, me and Bianca. Welcome to the show, Bianca. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on here. Oh, you're so welcome. You do some really important work in the world. And so much of what you do is helping the medical establishment and doctor's offices and medical professionals to be a little bit more aware and comfortable talking about sexual health issues. And I'd love to know how you got started doing that because it's so fucking necessary. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, it is. And part of the reason that I got started in it was not necessarily because I felt like I had unique qualifications for the job but just because i looked around and said why aren't people doing this this is a serious unmet need in the community um but i started out my background is uh a little bit hodgepodge as i think a lot of sex educators do have that arrangement in their background, but uh, my degree is in international studies, and I realized in the midst of that that I actually really wanted to work stateside and focus on problems systemically that I understood a little bit better. So I felt like that degree gave me this interest in and this awareness of the way that big systems like healthcare and education and government affect the day-to-day lives of people who might be struggling. And then I went to work for a couple of years with a homelessness organization. So I was doing case management and helping people find employment. And that gave me sort of a better understanding of what some of the health needs were for marginalized communities and uh, sort of the hands-on, in-the-trenches experience of what it means to like be poor, be marginalized black in a lot of cases in DC and trying to to make things work and while I was doing that I was also interning at a little organization called the garden here in DC which um, doesn't really operate anymore but that gave me the opportunity to connect with a lot of other sex educators and learn more about that field which is something I'd already been passionate about so when it came time for me to sort of strike out on my own I pulled all three of those pieces together. I said, I want to work to support marginalized people. I want to make things better for my community, for LGBT people. I want to make it better for survivors of sexual assault. I want to make it better for people of color. And I want to work at a systems-based level and make sure that people know how to talk about sex and how to support our healthcare needs that way. So it kind of just brought all of those pieces together under one roof. 
for listeners who have been listening to the show for a while, you probably remember when I had Zena Sharman on the show who put together the anthology The Remedy, which is all about the barriers and the challenges that trans and queer and non-binary people face when they're trying to navigate the medical system. And I'm sure so many people listening have had less than satisfactory two traumatic experiences with doctors for a range of reasons. And and it's so interesting to me because, you know, culturally, we have this narrative that doctors are godlike. And mm. this belief that doctors are somehow knowledgeable in all things and above it all and are somehow superhuman. And I think that's one of the reasons why it can hurt so much more to experience some kind of judgment or shame when you're sitting in a doctor's office because we kind of have this cultural belief that they know all the things. So if they're shaming me or if they're not seeing me for something, then it must be really bad. Yeah, and, and that doesn't come from nowhere either. You know, a lot of healthcare providers see themselves that way and it's really built into how the curriculum is set up, this very strong barrier between professional self and personal self that gives you the feeling that you are kind of above it all. So for people who have that experience and are, who are disappointed in their healthcare providers, it's not just you like setting up unrealistic expectations. Like that is, that is the medical culture to a T. Yeah. How do medical staff respond usually when you work with an office or you offer a training and you're talking to them about trans issues or queer sex or um, trauma, what's the response that you usually find? Well, so the thing about it is, is by the time I get into an office, that is a group of practitioners that have already decided this is worth paying attention to. This is stuff that I don't know and I need to know. Whereas I would say the majority of my time is devoted to doing outreach and cold calls and trying to connect with practices that mostly show their lack of interest by not picking up the phone. So, <laughs> you know, once I get in the room, people are very excited and they're very engaged and they're laughing and they're learning and they're saying, oh, I didn't think about it that way, but that's so true. Um, but it's the silence from the people who say this isn't a priority for me that yeah. I think really hurts the most. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think something that's been challenging for me personally, so my guess is I'm not alone is there has been feelings I've had to navigate around the fact that I know now when I go into a medical situation that I'm going to have to do a, a lot of emotional labor to advocate for myself and to set very clear boundaries and to oftentimes educate the people that are trying to treat me. Oh my gosh, and, yes. I'm sorry you, know. <laughs> you have to deal with that. And I'm sorry to all of the listeners who probably have that experience too. It's freaking exhausting and it's, it's yeah. unfair in a lot yeah. of ways. And I'm wondering, like, what do you think, you know, for people who either have STIs or they're poly or they're queer and trans or whatever it is that they're going to have to probably advocate for themselves in, in a little bit <laughs> more active of a way than, than we'd like to. What do you think is a good way to, to have a conversation with a nurse or a doctor that'll really like get their attention and make it something that can be mutually 
uh, beneficial rather than just completely taxing? Like, what do you think is the best way to approach a situation where you have to advocate for yourself? Mm. Well, I mean, I think it does vary based on what it is you need to advocate for yourself for. Like, it's so different for, like people with bigger bodies trying to advocate like, hey, I don't want to be weighed at the doctor's office. I don't need your commentary on my weight and my body size versus like a trans person that specifically needs you to like use specific language and pronouns and navigate like the differences in documentation that are going on with their insurance and things like that. So I think it's very contextual, um, but so I don't, I don't feel like there's a very good pat script, but the main thing I always remind people of is like, if you have the power of choice and you feel like a provider isn't hearing you, isn't listening when you correct them or when you try to offer context for what's going on in your life, then please, dear God, like vote with your feet and vote with your dollars to go somewhere else. Because, uh, if nothing else, like you should know that you are entitled to something better. Yeah. And so if you can't fix the problem, like at least know that you you deserve to go somewhere that you're respected. And I think it's important to let doctors know when you leave their practice the reason why. you why. did it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, I know that it can be really difficult, especially if you've just maybe had an OBGYN visit and they shamed you for having multiple partners or whatever it was. But, you know, when you make the decision to leave, if you've got that option – Uh, I think it's so important for us to let their offices know, I'm leaving because of this. It's not acceptable. I've found a new practitioner, and Mm -hmm. this is something you really need to address, because otherwise they don't know why you left, and they're not going to change. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, I have had situations where on the back end, like if I had a bad experience, um, I would call the office manager and be like, hey, this wasn't appropriate. And like, I waited a long time for this appointment and I didn't get the care I deserved. And when I've had to do that, they're like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Let us get you in with like a different provider. We'll make sure that we address your needs appropriately. And, you know, I got seen like two days later and by like a much more sensitive uh, nurse practitioner instead. So like sometimes they do hear you on the back end and like do make adjustments accordingly. And I would like that culture of humility um, to pervade medicine much more than <laughs> I feel like is standard at this point. Okay, so I just attended the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health Conference. Oh, yeah. Yes. And I know that you have a blog post about a medical conference that you attended uh, last year. And I have shared a couple of thoughts on the show, but I haven't really dug into it. And I just would love to kind of geek out with you a little bit about my experience at this conference and also hear about your experience because it was kind of bizarre and kind of a, I don't know it was it was weird would it's you like a whole other world right yeah, yeah. no I'm totally down oh to talk God. about that okay so the first thing that I noticed when I walked in was uh the vendors which were interesting <laughs> and that it was easily 95 percent white mm. and maybe one visibly queer person So it was, I I don't know, it was like mostly white, a handful of folks who were visibly Asian. I saw one black woman, 
and not anybody with visible visible disabilities not anybody who is visibly trans or even identifying themselves as trans so i thought that was kind of interesting and then the i don't know it was so fascinating to me to sit there and listen to all of these researchers and these doctors talking about the studies that they're doing and just over and over and over and over again i felt like they were either completely leaving out like the social and the cultural elements mm-hmm. it's like they're so hyper focused on the biology that they're completely forgetting about all the other aspects that go into sexual health and sexual experiences and there was also this interesting thing where it seemed like there was just kind of this unspoken agreement that if we can eliminate quote unquote dysfunction and if we can eliminate pain then that is the same as pleasure mm. Did you find that? Um, I so you, the conference you went to was was Ishwish, right? Which were yes. like specifically focused on quote unquote women's sexual health, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So it for me it was similar because I went to to ACOG, which is like the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Um, so the focus wasn't specifically on sex. There was like a pregnancy track. There was an like a gynecology track. There was a um, sexuality track so there were um i think the the like strong focus was definitely on the biological component um but we saw there was like a little more variety of voices i went to a session that was looking specifically at the laws and the evolving like legal climate related to abortion care around mm. the u.s and that was put on that was like one of the only sessions that was run by a non-md it was put on by like the people from the National Women's Law Center, I think. Awesome. So it was actually really cool. I thought that was a lovely session. Um, so there was like definitely a dominant trend of we're talking about the physicality associated with sex and we're, um, we're looking very much at like the biomechanics. And there was a huge emphasis on uh, sexual pain and, and especially related to menopause. That was like oh my gosh, the entire industry had just finally discovered that, like, people go through menopause and that when <laughs> there's less estrogen in their bodies, like, sex isn't great anymore. I'm like, wow, that's been happening for a really long time for you to just figure this out now. <laughs> so. Yep. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Yeah. So here's the biggest disconnect that I noticed, mm-hmm. and I'm I am being a little bit of a jerk, but that's <laughs> like there were some lovely people at this conference, and everyone that I talked to was super excited that I'm a sex coach and that mm-hmm. I have a sex podcast. But it was also really clear that heterosexual cis white folks studying heterosexual <laughs> cis white folks yeah. doesn't yield the most um, inclusive findings. And you don't say. <laughs> the reason that I say that is because I sat in on probably um, 12 different presentations where they were talking about heterosexual women, you know, of course the majority are, are white, but heterosexual cis women 
And there are sexual issues, the high levels of sexual dissatisfaction, the high levels of lack of orgasm, the high levels of sexual pain, and the ways that they're studying that and trying to find the biology behind it and testing Addy for like low sexual oh desire, God. you know, and just like, so there's all these panels about that. And then one morning, very early, it was a 7am session, I went to a discussion group called Women Having Sex with Women. And, it was and you four. know that when it happens at 7 a.m., it's not a priority <laughs> exactly. because that scheduling is not a mistake. Right. So oh. it was thankfully a full room, but nice. uh, it was a it was an older, heterosexual, cis, white psychologist Why? Um, doing her best to lead a discussion. There were definitely <laughs> some misses. But the room was full of nurse practitioners and OBGYNs, and there were some really fantastic people in the room. In fact, um, there was this one woman who's the head of the Kaiser Trans Hormone Center in Oakland. Uh. But the vast majority of the room were just kind of speculating. Oh, I've had one client who's a trans woman. I've had one client who's come out as queer to me. And they're all kind of guessing about women having sex with women. But what was interesting was the person leading the discussion had all of these studies in front of her. And she kept reading these studies that show, which you and I both know, that lesbians have the highest rates of sexual satisfaction and lesbians have the highest rates of orgasm and lesbians have, you know, all of these things that are kind of the antithesis of the heterosexual and the bi women's experiences. But nobody was talking about, well, if lesbians are having less pain and more orgasms and higher satisfaction than straight women, maybe we should talk about queering straight women's sex. Mm-hmm. And like, was... maybe it's not just a biological problem because there's mm-hmm. nothing biologically different about right. lesbians. <laughs> right. We and have like... the same teeth and the same spleens. So. Yes, exactly. And like there was, it was, it was shocking to me that all of the same people that were in the room talking about women having sex with women weren't then translating that information into something in the other panels that was for discussion. It was it was the most bizarre disconnect. And thankfully, I saw one person, one tweet <clears throat> after the conference that, you know, Iswish talks about being a conference that takes the biopsychosocial approach. And there was there was lots of biology, and there was a handful of psychologists and psychiatrists there. Only one person, the entire conference, talked about culture. Wow. And so it just kind of made so clear for me why we kind of have the problems that we have when it comes to sexual health and the medical community and people feeling so broken. Mm-hmm. And there's just these like massive, dis- there's no one at the conference that's connecting it to the social and the cultural. Mm-hmm. And it just felt like such a massive miss. Yeah, no, absolutely. And there's like this like deep siloing of of queer health like we're like a different species or yes. something and and like oh, the rules are just totally totally different. Yeah. for for us. And they're not. Like and that's like so much of the the teaching model that I do is looking at this idea that like okay, we don't have to have a different 
way of talking to queer and trans people. We needed a different way of talking to all people that's more inclusive so that like it it's less othering and like we're we are queering sexual health in a way that's beneficial for everyone. Yeah. So yeah Ugh, i know <laughs> i'm sorry it's okay i just i i have to vent about this one other thing that happened mm-hmm. um okay because again i'm gonna sound a little bit like i'm picking on them and there were some lovely things that happened but the vast majority i thought was a miss but there was this one panel it's the president of some men's health prostate cancer guy okay. and all of his work is with prostate cancer mm-hmm. and his presentation actually cited the book Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. No! And so he puts the book up, and he's like, this was one of the bestsellers of the entire 90s. And then the next slide comes up, and he's like, but isn't gender a social construct? Isn't this just kind of ridiculous? And I'm like, okay, maybe this is going in a better direction. And then the Uh slide after that was, but no, men actually do you know, define their entire beings by their penises. Oh my God. um, All of the studies being done about prostate recovery and sexual satisfaction for men is appealing to women and their needs for communication. But men don't want communication. Men don't want tenderness and intimacy. They want intercourse. (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah. And like, it was, it was so interesting to me because there's this man preaching to a room of mostly women And he's talking about how study after study after study after study has been done on how post-prostate cancer men feel about sex. And that every single one of the studies basically shows no improvement for the men and only improvements for their female partners because all of the studies are about teaching better sexual communication and sharing feelings more and men don't care about that stuff they just want a raging hard cock that they can put in holes and so (laughs) basically his takeaway was if we want to do better by prostate cancer survivors then we need to make women realize that penises and sex are more important and focus less on the talking about it Oh my god, because that isn't how our entire society already works. Like, it couldn't possibly be that maybe with these interventions, women are experiencing better sex because they were the ones having shitty sex in the first place. And so Mm -hmm. as soon as we deprioritize people with erections, like, we can suddenly start having an equal playing field. But it looks like a loss to men. Right. Because... Right. Suddenly, it's not literally all about you. Oh, oh my god, like, I want to shake this person. Oh my god, I know. I was like, ah. I was like, I would actually burn this hotel to the ground if I could right now. But, um, but like, <laughs> the thing that was just so striking to me was all of the like interventions that they've been testing. Because I'm, you know, I'm not trying to say prostate cancer isn't serious. It's super. Oh serious. no, it is. And like, they were showing these statistics that you know, prostate cancer rates are one in five, and breast cancer rates are one in six. So prostate cancer is much more common and Mm -hmm. you know lots of people with prostates are going to end up with cancer of course it was completely just like gender essentialist and he was only talking about men getting prostate cancer oh yeah that's a whole different conversation trans women aren't real right they don't don't have (laughs) they don't have bodies actually so yeah right (laughs) and so like i get that prostate cancer is terrifying and scary and difficult and then it does Mm -hmm. take a toll on your body and and i agree that our culture 
because of toxic masculinity and sexism and patriarchy does tell men that their only access to pleasure, masculinity, and worth is through their penis. Mm -hmm. And that to me is the exact point where as a healthcare provider, you can start having conversations around like, yes, you should mourn and grieve. And yes, things have changed and they might change again as you get older or as other things happen. Let's talk about sex toys. Let's talk about strap-ons. Let's talk about all the ways you can have super yummy, I'm fucking the hell out of my partner sex that maybe don't rely on whether or not your penis is getting fully erect today. Absolutely. And I mean, I this is the place where like I have the most trouble with the healthcare industry, not because this isn't something this is something that doctors should be doing and they're not. Yeah. Because like I genuinely believe that that's not their role. Like yeah. they have they cannot be all things to all people. Absolutely. Like there's so much information in your brain as a healthcare provider that it's just like absolutely astounding. But we do not have a system set up and this is the thing that I don't know how to fix yet because I don't understand managed care organizations and health insurance and nonsense like that but like we don't have a system set up where people can access through their healthcare providers and through their insurance um yep. any kind of specialized advice and and support around these issues so like i don't want a doctor to be like yeah let's talk about sex toys and let's talk <laughs> about um you know uh like teasing and denial play and things like that no they should be talking to you be like okay yeah. i'm gonna write you a referral for don sarah and you're gonna go right. talk Talk to her and that's going to be a productive conversation but like we don't have the resources for that right now so if somebody has a sexual problem that they don't want treated with with medication then they have to pay out of pocket for it and that leaves yeah. it so inaccessible and it makes it so that like the only people who even get to talk about pleasure and these alternative approaches are like white middle to upper class people who can afford yep. sex coach work and stuff like that so it's yep. just this vicious cycle and that was actually where i wanted to bring it back around you mentioned when you first came in like all these vendors um like i don't know if it's it's quite on the same scale as acog but like can you talk a little bit about what the exhibit hall looked like or like what scale we're talking about with these vendors okay so there weren't that many which Kind of surprised hmm. me, but when you first walked into the hotel, there was maybe six vendors right at the registration desk, and then if you walked around the corner into a bigger hallway, there was maybe another 20. Okay. And the thing that surprised me was it was KY, which, you know, exactly, <laughs> right. I wanted to just be like, here is Sarah Miller's study on osmolality. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, like, KY had a massive booth there. Um, it was a handful of, like, plastic surgeons slash bionic wave face tighteners mm. slash, you know, use this chin exerciser and it'll take years off and wrinkle-free kind of stuff. <laughs> um and then a couple of, uh, like, smaller kind of dilator and vibrator companies for folks with dysperinia. Okay. Um, so it kind of ran the gamut. But I was a little bit surprised by, one, the KY thing. And, two, there was a number of booths for a variety of pills mm -hmm. around, like, desire or looking younger or getting rid of wrinkles. And I was just kind of like, no. No. Okay, so let's let me 
paint the picture for you of what I saw in the exhibit hall at ACOG, because this is like a dramatically different story. Ah. Um, and this, I think, illustrates where, like, the the uh, deviation between the biology approach and the social approach comes from, because one of them has money behind them and one of them doesn't. So you walk into the ACOG exhibit hall, which is like... I don't even know how large. It's like the size of three conference conference halls. Like, it's enormous. And just a brief sweep around the room, I would say there is at least $3 million worth of booth set up in this room. Easily. Wow. There is, uh, um, and not even people trying to sell stuff, but like um, upline product development advisory people. So they're like, this is something that we're working on right now. And so we want people to know about DHEA and we want people to know about dyspareunia and things like that. And they're baking cinnamon buns for you in their own oven at their booth. And they're serving cocktails and ice cream from their booth as a way to say like, hey, come over and talk to us about this (laughs) product that we're developing Bayer had a waterfall wow that like when it fell down it would write out words like it showed the Bayer logo and then it said like you know like women's health or something uh, in patterns so the kind of like money and investment in this conference Mm from the industry is enormous they know that there are millions of dollars on the line from these healthcare providers in terms of like what they're going to invest in and how they're going to prescribe to their patients Mm -hmm. and like they're willing to put their huge amounts of their advertising budget on the line to capture people's attention there's no money behind a social approach that says maybe we just need to talk to each other a little bit more and so like i can't i i looked into having a booth at acog and it would have been absurdly expensive like two thousand dollars was like the minimum for like a tiny table and then i would have to buy all of the stuff to take with me to just staff it so this is not accessible to people who are talking about marginalized populations or people who are trying to um look at socio-emotional approaches to to gynecological health and sexual health yeah it was pretty clear to me that the people at isquish even though a lot of it was misguided are people who are on the fringes you know Mm. women's sexual health is not a money maker and it's not a place where big companies want to have their name associated with it there were you know, other than KY, no names that I recognized in the booths other than one or two small toy companies. And uh, it also just, I was talking to my partner afterwards and he was like, when you think about where universities are putting money for research and funding, Mm. it's not in orgasms and clitorises. It's brain science and breast cancer and things that have like big social value and money behind them. And Yeah, it was just so weird. And, like, I will just kind of say there were a couple of really rad things that happened. Cindy Meston from Meston Labs, I think at the University of Texas in Austin, gave this fantastic talk that had all of the women in the room, like, clapping so loudly because apparently at last year's meeting, Iswish issued a statement that basically said um, women's 
sexual women's sexual response is entirely and fundamentally based in whether or not they can um, get whether or not they notice their genitals engorging with blood. What? Right. And so, like, Cindy Meston got really pissed off that, like, this conference was basically saying, we believe that women's sexual satisfaction is based on whether or not their brains are connected with the blood that's engorging in their genitals. And she was like, bullshit. And so she actually spent the whole last year conducting multiple studies in her lab and then presented the findings at this meeting and said, I've spent the last year proving you wrong. Yes. That there are loads of women who have high levels of sexual satisfaction and in fact don't care about their genitals engorging because it's just not part of what turns them on and gets them off and they're not broken they don't need to be fixed and I have all these studies and numbers now to prove it and so like that was super awesome I think she's doing really cool work yeah I think that was actually um in uh unscrewed uh Jacqueline uh, Jacqueline's new book uh has a chapter devoted to that research and I was like this is fascinating brilliant stuff yeah yeah that was really good and a whole bunch of her like grad students and research assistants also um shared some of their papers so that was really great and then they had it 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 wasn't packed the way that I hoped it would have been, but it was pretty full. They had a trans symposium mm. where three people who are leaders in the field of trans health talked about the super basics that like doctors and nurses would need to know about hormones and how to code papers. And if a trans woman says, my employer can't know, I'm not out, I need you to use male pronouns in my files here's Mm -hmm. how you do that and they also did this um presentation on like with pictures of bottom surgery before and after and talking about like hormones and teens and so like that was fantastic i hope they have more of that um but yeah yeah, it was yeah it i freaking love that and that that was like Uh, I know, like, obviously, culturally, we need to move away from, like, our obsession with trans people's genitals, but, like, (laughs) the actual, like, the the surgical processes associated with, like, affirming gender-based care is, like, one of those things that, like, I've gotten super nerdy into lately as, like, somebody who will who will never be performing surgery, but, like, Mm -hmm. just loves appreciating, like, the different uh, processes that we continue to develop to make these, these procedures better and, and more authentic and less painful and have quicker recovery times and things like that. So, yeah, one of them had this study. I'm hoping to get uh, a couple of them on the show at some point because they just do such fascinating work. Mm. But, um, one of them had this statistic up that showed that it was something like 92% of trans people have, contemplated suicide or attempted suicide in their lives but that number drops to 4% if they come from a family that is fully accepting of their trans status I I don't know if the numbers are that dramatic, but that that is definitely accurate. Like I've seen yeah. for adolescents, it like halves their risk of depression and anxiety and suicidality mm-hmm. and things like that. It, it's a huge protective factor. Yeah, yeah, it was wonderful, and I hope 
more medical conferences start talking about these issues. And I also hope that more medical conferences, like my number one takeaway was so much could be changed if medical offices had on staff people like sex coaches and sex educators and people Mm -hmm. who could offer the social component, the communication component, and the support component. Because you're right, like doctors and nurses can't know all the things. So Mm -hmm. how do we make it more integrated and holistic so that the tools that we need when we're talking about oh, my orgasms aren't feeling how I want them to feel. Well, let's look at the biology. Let's talk about the psychology. And let's also talk about a whole bunch of other skills that can help you in the meantime and maybe even shift the way that you're feeling about it all. And we can do that all here and or with our network. You know, mm-hmm. it's just like, oh. Got to find a way to bill for it, man. Right. The, I know there are providers out there who want this. You know, yeah. the folks that are already saying, you know, this is a problem. And I do know a number of providers, at least in my network, who are saying, hey, we want more resources. We want to be able to do this better. But, like, there's just a limitation to what they're able to offer. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. But what I'm hearing is also that we probably need to put together a presentation for Ishwish. I don't know if we're allowed to present there because a lot of these conferences make it so that like, oh, you have to have a specific qualification in order to uh, to submit a proposal or an abstract. But like, I would want to see that happen. Oh, for sure. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. I mean, one of, I, I was like, okay, I either need to like, present at this thing or I need to table because the tabling at Iswish I think is a lot less expensive than at ACOG because it's just a lot smaller but I was like maybe I should just have a table Mm. and maybe we should just put together a whole bunch of like booklets and stuff that give them all kinds of tools for for conversations and to do better because Mm -hmm. um we can't keep having misses like this yeah like too many people end up harmed and traumatized when the misses are in this space specifically yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay. Oh. So I just want to let everybody know that Patreon supporters, after we wrap up for this, Bianca and I are going to have a conversation about um, orgasms and the female price of male pleasure, which is an article that came out that we were talking about before we hopped on. So if you're a Patreon supporter, be sure to head over to patreon.com slash sex gets real to hear us talking all about like orgasms and pleasure and how it ties in with all this medical stuff. But Bianca, I'd love to know if you're up for fielding a listener question or two with me. Yeah, of course. Okay. So this first question comes from Chet and the subject line is when to talk about your body issues. Mm. So the email says, I appreciate all the good advice you give on your show. I'm an older man, bisexual, but leaning more towards gay. When I was a kid, I underwent surgery, and ever since, I have had to wear a pouch on my side to drain my kidneys. For most of my life, I was self-conscious about this and reluctant to get into sexual situations. Recently, I've gotten better and feel less self-conscious about this once I have told a prospective sexual partner about it and they've accepted it. Mm. And a lot of that has to do with listening to you and your show. But my question is, when do I bring it up? I don't think it's right to wait until I'm dropping my pants. But sometimes I feel waiting. I feel like I'm waiting too long and trying to get them to see the real me may look like I'm leading someone on and hiding something from them. So I'd love to know what you think. 
Mm, that's so real. Well, thank yeah. you for writing in, Chet. That's like a very vulnerable thing to share, and like I'm glad that you did. So that's that's really valuable. Yeah. It's, and I mean, I see a lot of corollaries there to like the conversation that we have in the trans community about like <laughs> when to disclose and things like that. Like if you pass really well, like am I hiding the fact that my genitals aren't what you're expecting? Like, or or is it just like I'm trying to get you to see who I am inside first before you make all these assumptions based on what I look like mm-hmm. um, with my pants down? Right. Yeah. Right. Because unfortunately, the current state of affairs is that it can be very dangerous and it can be very um, unfortunate to someone to make that discovery in the moment, right? Because Mm -hmm. culturally speaking, genitals are very meaningful. And if someone were to have a different set of genitals than they thought they were going to get, it could lead to violence and all kinds of terrible things. And I think similarly with um, disabilities and different kinds of bodies that might not be visible at first, we don't have the social skills to navigate disability well. (laughs) (laughs) So people say shitty things in the moment because they don't know what to do and they're feeling awkward. So I think, unfortunately, most of us who have a variety of things going on from transness to disability, um, you know, surprising someone with it in the moment, it can end badly because we just culturally aren't giving ourselves the skills to be able to handle something like with curiosity right right uh, yeah and I so mean when... everybody benefits from a little cognitive rehearsal so right, like, exactly. <laughs> you know it's not not definitely not a bad uh instinct to be yeah. like we should mention this ahead of time but I also don't think like Chet that you're you're hiding anything from a person like this this bag that drains your kidney is or this pouch that drains your kidneys is not like who you are you know it's a part of your body and it's a part of like how you live your life but it's not you're not like keeping some big dark secret for from from someone like and it doesn't even like it may fundamentally change a little bit of the the mechanics of how someone interacts with you sexually but like it doesn't change who you are or or like how your body works necessarily in the moment so like I just I don't ever want you to feel anxious about feeling like you're leading someone on or you're like keeping something a secret that I don't think that even qualifies as like a as as a as a deep dark secret it's Mm -hmm. just like a part of your life but like when you want to bring it up I so the thing that I've realized right is like whenever I I used to be that like very dramatic person that was like okay, so I have something to tell you. And I think it made any disclosure that I had (laughs) more, like, more of a big deal than it ever needed to be. And, like, the thing I learned from doing case management and, like, social work is, like, we, if you use uh, tone mirroring, essentially. So, like, if you say it, like, it's no big deal, like, it's just a part of your life, it happens, whatever, then the other person is going to interpret it as no big deal, it's a part of your life, versus, yeah. oh my gosh, I have this big important disclosure to make with you. So, like, I don't think there's a specific, like, a appropriate time, like, oh, you need to mention this after dinner, but before dessert, on the first date, like, whatever. Um, it's... But when you do bring it up, like, as long as you're in a place that it's like, hey, this is just something that, like, you might want to know about. 
even like if you want it to be humorous and like this is this is just like something funny and cool about me yeah can be a cool way to to introduce it rather than like some big confession that needs to happen yeah I I totally agree like if you're opting to tell someone once you've established a little bit of a connection and had some conversations then I think you're right when we come into something just knowing it's okay and this isn't like a big deal to me it doesn't need to be a big deal to you and now I'm just gonna like share the thing that has a very different feeling because the other person picks up on the confidence and it's like oh well they know what they're talking about so maybe it's okay if I just like follow their lead versus the I'm super scared of being rejected and I don't know how to say this and this feels awkward and now I'm building it up and then the other person starts getting nervous of like, oh God, what is it going to be? And it totally shifts. And I I mean, I think that's true for anything. Like if we're going to talk about like, oh, hey, I want to tell you, like I'm kinky. That's Mm -hmm. totally different than like, okay, we need, can we, can we have a talk because um, I need to tell you something. Right. Like very different feeling. (laughs) (laughs) Very different. (laughs) And I mean, especially if there's, and that, that was like a great segue, Dawn, because I was thinking like, it's really easy. Well, it's not easy, but like you can have a conversation about like kinkiness and desires and things like that, that turns into a very sexy conversation where you're like, so the, so one of the things that like really gets me going is like, I really love bondage or whatever and and like talking about some of the specifics and how that like impacts you in a very positive way so if I don't know where you're at with with your pouch like if it's a thing that you like love and appreciate about your body now or if there's anything like erogenous about it or or like fun or exciting I know for people who have like ostomy bags um for their colons there's like special lingerie and things like that that like really helps you embrace what that looks like so if there's any like touchstone of conversation related to how you interact with that pouch be like oh yeah i have this super like awesome shirt that that i feel like really like highlights or like it goes right around the pouch in a really comfy way that's like you're able to talk about this particular medical issue you have without it being about the medicalization of, of your mm-hmm. body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if that was clear, but. No, yeah, that was <laughs> totally clear. And I think it just depends for Chet, you know, where you are with it and how it feels. I'm also a fan too. Like you get to decide based on the person and the conversation when you want to do the disclosure. Mm. You get to feel it out. You know, is this someone that I feel immediately comfortable with? Or is this someone who like, we need to get to know each other a little bit before we start getting kind of vulnerable. I'm also a fan of the, put the thing you're most afraid of in your bio. Right. Mm. So I know that Krista Ann Arenda you know, one of the first things in her dating bios is I have herpes. And it's because she just was like, I don't even have to worry about having the conversation. It's just in my effing bio. People can self-select out. And people say that about being fat or having a variety of disabilities or anxiety. And that might be something too. Like if you're doing online dating, you could decide whether or not you want to fold that into your bio in a really creative way of here's all these awesome things about me. Hey, guess what? 
I also had this like super impressive surgery when I was young and now I have this incredible life and I got this cool bag that came with me and it's just part of you and what you're putting out into the world and then people can either select in or select out based on that. So I think it just depends on your comfort level, um, how you're meeting people, what feels good. I think the main answer though is like you really can't do it wrong. You just have to do it your way. Mm-hmm. And if somebody has shitty feelings about it, then there's the information you need about that person doesn't deserve access to your body. Right. Yeah. Thank you for helping me feel that. And thank you to Chet for yeah, writing in. You, <laughs> yeah. I hope, I love that you've, you're feeling less self-conscious about it and that once you've told someone you feel a lot more comfortable. And so I hope that you continue meeting someone's and enjoying your sexuality and, and having pleasure and celebrating all the things that your body can do. All right. One of the other things I pulled this question out for a reason, and I'd love to know if, if you're open to it. You also talk about consent in your workshops and you wrote this wonderful piece about the Kelly Shabari and Reed Mahalko situation And the thing that you ended it with was, I start all of my workshops by talking about consent and also acknowledging all the times that I have violated someone's consent or hurt someone to just kind of name, right, that we can hurt people and it's not only monsters that do that and we can violate consent and we need to live with that and do our best moving ahead from it. And I got a question that's a little bit long, but it's about uh, this kind of space of, I think I violated somebody's consent, but I don't know how to reconcile that. And I'm wondering if you'd be willing to, to listen to it and then help me field it. Yeah, absolutely. That's, okay. that's really intense. And I'm, I'm glad to have space to do that. Yeah. So it's a little bit long, but okay. I think the story is important. And I also just want to offer to everybody listening The subject line is, am I a rapist? So depending on how many spoons you have as you're listening to this, this might feel tender for you and you might want to skip ahead 15 minutes or so. Um, But I'm going to read the question and then we will explore. So it says, first, I have been binge listening to your podcast for the last week and I have learned so much. Thank you for all of your emotional labor and the time you put in. I am non-binary, 24 queer, and assigned female at birth. It's a long one, so saddle up. Almost a year ago, I met another non-binary ab-fab human, and it was your typical love-at-first-sight U-Haul scenario. We immediately became very close and intimate. I was absolutely head over heels in love. One evening, they had a party. I was slightly uncomfortable because all of their friends are very queer, and I was just coming into my queerness and discovering my identity, and for some reason, I never felt queer enough for them, so I drank too much. Typically, my coping mechanism when I'm feeling very anxious is drinking. At some point in the evening, I blacked out, so the rest of the story is what I was told by my former partner. Basically, we went to their room for something, and I decided I was in the mood for some quick playtime. I started trying to seduce them. I put my hand down their pants and they said no. I then stuck my fingers inside of them and they said no again and pushed me off. I left the room and went back to the party. Within seconds, forgetting everything that had happened. Fast forward to the next day. I left in the morning for work. 
They texted me exclaiming that when someone says no, they mean it and I should respect that. Very confused, I asked them to explain. They told me the story pretty much verbatim of what I just told you. I was mortified. I apologized profusely. I took responsibility for my actions and I explained that I understood if they never wanted to speak with me or see me ever again. They said they just needed time. And I respected that. The next day, they were texting me saying they didn't want me out of their life and that they still deeply cared for me. I still kept my distance for a while, but when we did eventually meet about a week later, they went out of their way to convince me that they still trusted me with their body. I was reluctant and nervous to touch them, but I was so insanely crazy about them that I did start to sleep with them again. After about another month, our relationship seemed to just sizzle out. I stopped hearing from them, and it sucked, but because of the circumstances, I let it go. Another month went by, and I received another text from them, this one saying that I raped them. And it took a long time to realize and accept it, and that they couldn't believe or understand how I could have just moved past it so quickly. This text crushed me, but there was no justifying my actions. After that, I ran into their roommate a few times in some openly queer spaces, and their roommate approached me each time and very publicly announced that I was a rapist and not safe in queer spaces always creating a scene. They told all their friends, and it was very scary for me to go to queer places that I knew and loved because I always felt like everyone that I knew. I finally started dating again and was very transparent with each person about the events. I wanted them to decide for themselves whether they could date a rapist. I eventually left that city, feeling ostracized and heartbroken. So here's the thing. I'm not looking to be a victim. I know what I did was terrible, and it eats me alive that I hurt a person like this. I have since been very adamant about consent, but sometimes it feels like I have lost my mojo. I'm afraid to make first moves like I used to when I go on dates, and almost all of my dominant tendencies are gone. I used to consider myself a switch. Now I am almost always dominated. I want that side back, the confident side, and I am lacking so much closure with that person I assaulted. I would like to believe that my intent is known and that they know I would never intentionally hurt them and that I definitely would never hurt anyone else ever again. But do you have any advice to help me live through this? Do you think I am destined to live with this pain and feel like this disgusting person for the rest of my life? I know this is a lot. Thanks for reading. Oh my gosh. Oh, my heart hurts so much. I know. (laughs) That's like, and there are like pieces that are so like terrifyingly familiar to me and like other pieces that are like levels of pain I have never felt before and oh that's hard yeah so thank you for the person that wrote in for this Uh, I am deeply grateful for you sharing this pain and like this process that you've been through and I want to start by saying like you handled this situation and like all of the fallout from it exceedingly well yeah like and we have a lot of us have done things that we shouldn't have done while we were drunk and like that this the thing that i talk about in a lot of my consent classes is like we want to live in this world where oh you know we have perfect consent every time because nobody drinks and then has sex nobody does drugs and has sex nobody like you know uh is like in the middle of a manic episode and and isn't like being accountable to their own actions kind of thing like there's we we want that but we realize that the world is messy and like shit happens and it's not perfect 
And so I think, like, this person has handled the fallout from, like, what was not a good behavior, but, like, was also something that they were not fully in control of mm-hmm. in exceedingly well and, like, takes full ownership of it and, like, tries to repair the harm that they've done and um, really, like, respects the space of the person who's hurting and all of that th- stuff. And the thing that I hate about our queer community is, like, the thing that makes it, the things that make it small and safe and, like, intimate and, like, family are the things that also make it toxic and impossible to find peace with sometimes when stuff goes wrong. Oh, my God. (laughs) It's so much easier to, like, write somebody off as a horrible person and, like, that we should never talk to them than it is to, like see the way that that the situation is complicated and and the accountability actions that are happening behind closed doors because that's also not like and this is what i wrote about with with uh reed and kelly is is sort of that like what the community wants from an accountability statement and like an accountability process is not nearly as fucking important as what kelly wants like yeah. the person who has been hurt gets to make the rules. Right. And so when friends and community members start like creating their own sort of like their own litmus tests, like that's just a recipe for everyone's continued pain and and isolation and confusion. And I'm sorry that it happened to this listener. Mm. Just, yeah. Ugh. I know. And and I think one of the things that's so tough is whether we've cheated on a partner or we've lied or we've done something like this person who wrote in whose initials are R.O., by the way. Mm. Um, So R.O., it's we don't have good systems or modeling for how to live with ourselves and how to hold ourselves accountable and to feel the feelings and not treat ourselves horribly at the same time. We're not very good culturally at self-compassion and we're also not very good at sitting in really uncomfortable, uncertain places, sometimes for long periods of time. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's just what it takes, you know, when we do something either intentionally or just because of the circumstances. And I think, you know, being drunk and doing something like this is a terrible set of circumstances for everybody involved. But, you know, to to sit in this place, yeah, it's going to suck for a while. And mm-hmm. we're going to have complicated feelings about it. And we might not like ourselves very much for a while. And Maybe it does change us for a while and we have to find ways to care for ourselves and grapple with that and get the support that we need, you know, whether it's therapy and counseling or support groups or community or friends or family, you know, it's, it's, we are not culturally very good at the tolerating. We just want to go from point a to point b as quickly as possible and to have the thing fixed to have the thing solved to have the thing cured and when we can't have that then often the solution is what you're talking about which is total ostracization 
um, totally cutting someone out of their lives, totally, you know, removing someone from the community. And that's a really, really tough thing for communities and for the people who have hurt others. Um, And I think you're so right. Like, we need to be always centering the person that was hurt. And I think that was one of my favorite parts of Jacqueline Friedman's book, Unscrewed, was when she was talking to that indigenous lawyer. And Mm. the indigenous lawyer was talking about how, back in the day, this one particular tribe had this law that if a woman was raped, then the community supported the woman in getting to choose the punishment. And, and I think that's kind of another version of what you're talking about of what does Kelly need or what does this person that RO um, harmed need and how do we center them? But we also can't then just pretend that the person who caused the harm is not human, is not part of the community anymore. Um, it's messy and complicated. And and I think that's what makes people so, so eager to just be like, I'm shunning you. You can't be a part of this. You're, it's because we need to feel like we're doing something. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there's not anything to do except to just be really fucking uncomfortable for a little while while we work internally on stuff or we go to therapy or we center the survivor for a while and they may not know what they need for a while. And so that's an uncomfortable place for people too, because everyone wants to feel like they're doing right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, we don't know whether the person that RO is seeking closure with is going to get to a place where they can have this conversation um, and like also like feel like they can hold RO accountable, but also move through their own pain and, and maybe find forgiveness. Like I would, I would love to see that, but I don't, you know, I don't know if it'll ever happen. Um, but in terms of how, how RO can move forward, you know, the big bulk of the question was really like, um, you know, how do I get my, how do I find my mojo? How do I like tap into this part of me that I feel afraid to utilize now because I have been, I have been a person who's violated and I've been a person labeled uh, a rapist. Mm -hmm. Like, can I still be dominant? Can I still like find safety in that action? And um, my, my feelings on that is like, you can, but I think it's going to be a long warm up period. Yeah. So like if you're doing, I, I don't know what kind of relationships or what kind of sex you're having. Like if you're doing pickup play, like, I've always been nervous about doing anything associated with like dominance with people I don't have an established dynamic with because it's so easy for stuff to go wrong. And I don't think that's going to feel safe for you for a very long time. Like, I'll be honest, it's just not. But with relationships that you, you set like a firm foundation with, um, I think it can come back and, you know, what I have sort of done with a lot of my relationships and things like that is like, I approach every new person as if they are a survivor of like intense and very serious trauma. Mm -hmm. So I had a partner who like had a, um, like a long-term stalker and, and, and partner that turned out to be abusive and, and, and like a rapist. And so starting a dynamic with that person 
meant being incredibly purposeful about my actions, being like super transparent, be like, I want to do this. Is that okay? Like, can I kiss your belly? Like, I want to nuzzle your hair. How does that sound? Like literally every action I did and we built and that laid like this cement foundation for our interactions that like allowed us to explore other stuff that was more in the power dynamic realm because they knew from the very first interaction that like consent was my number one priority like this is what this is what is centering all of our interactions and when you i think when you build that foundation then the other rooms of the house that you're you're building can have more flourishes and Mm -hmm. and can can involve those power dynamics and things like that so i don't know what the timeline's going to look like for this person um you know it could be you only need like one or two interactions to to build that nice solid foundation maybe it's many months before that dominant mojo can come back but i don't think that it's it's gone forever yeah i love that advice so much and I honestly don't have much to add. I think you're so right. Like if, if you can find a little bit of kindness for yourself and if you can just start approaching all of your relationships from that, like deeply consent based place, um, there's the potential for really, really wonderful things to be built and learned and practiced and explored. And that makes you and the other person feel safe and I love that one of the things that Aro mentioned just being very upfront with potential partners around hey this thing happened yeah I want you to know about it that's important I mean I think that's a really powerful brave thing to do that helps people to also trust you and to see you're doing the work and you're taking responsibility and 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 I think it fights off a little bit of the hypocrisy too because like if you're trying to like set yourself up as this person saying like I prioritize consent like I want you to feel comfortable but I also have to acknowledge that like I have made a big fuck up in the past and like that's the weird part about me for me like having these conversations as an educator and on air and things like that I'm like this same partner that I did I felt like I did a really really fucking good job like setting the foundation of our relationship like they were the person that I then assaulted because like shit happens in relationships and it wasn't okay what I did but like they have like we had a process where we moved to it being okay and yet I still need to like hold myself accountable in a whole lot of other spaces to be like this happened I'm not hiding it I'm not sweeping it under the rug I'm not pretending that I'm this like perfect person and that I've never made any mistakes I've never hurt anyone um and I think RO is already doing that work and that's the hardest work of all yeah it really is um that self-accountability and being able to even name it I think is a huge step that a lot of people don't get to they just try to deflect and downplay and find excuses and and there's there's a confronting that's clearly happened and so you know I'm sorry that this happened I'm sorry that people got hurt I'm sorry that it's so ugly and you know I think the thing to remember is Like, the human condition is fucking messy, and we are not yet 
very well equipped with skills that help us to navigate ugly situations. We're all kind of flailing and communities don't handle things like this well and don't really have the tools for centering survivors and for managing harm. And it's just messy. It (laughs) is. is. You know, it's like, it's unfortunate and, and it's just the truth. And the best we can do is just try to learn from it and grow from it and, and move ahead, hoping and trying our best to do better and to be a better person and to be really honest about that journey. Yeah. And I would be remiss if I didn't just like briefly mention that, like, I don't know how common of a problem alcohol is for this listener, um, but it may be beneficial to seek out some kind of support around, like, the relationship with alcohol, because you, it seems very clear from this narrative that, like, this situation would not have happened if you weren't, if you weren't drinking. And so, like, the way that alcohol changes our behavior is so powerful and so, like, it's something that obviously needs to be treated with care. And so I will always support people in saying like, Hey, this has become like a problematic element of my life. And maybe it's time to step back from that because Mm -hmm. queers are like, we are so soaked in alcohol because it's an, it's like a coping mechanism in like a stressful world that is mean to us sometimes. And so one thing that I do very actively is like seek out sober communities within queer spaces. And I felt like that has helped me like find places where I feel safe, but also like could be helpful for you in making sure that behavior in the future is what you want it to be because you're not relying on a substance that makes your behavior unpredictable. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. That's important. And thank you to RO for sharing this with us and letting others grapple with it too, because I can guarantee you there are people listening who are in a similar situation or have done something similar and probably need to grapple as well. So Mm -hmm. thank you for letting us be a part of that. Um, Okay, so we need to close because we've gone well over our hour. (laughs) We need to go hop over into our little Patreon bonus chat all about like orgasms and the female price of pleasure. But before we do that, can you share with everyone how they can stay in touch with you and find you online? Yes, please stay in touch with me. So um, I am not good about having uniform like social media presence, but my website is www.intimatehealthconsulting.com. And so there's like a contact us page on there. I occasionally blog. I need to be better about that. Um, And then I'm very, very active on social media. Um, Facebook is facebook.com slash intimate health consulting. Instagram is at intimate health consulting. And then Twitter is the one that doesn't match. I am at fun size sex ed with underscores between fun and size and between size and sex so um that or you can also just look my name up bianca palmazano and you'll find me so i love 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 talking to people on all social media platforms definitely stay in touch that way 
Well, I will have all of those links at sexgetsreal.com for this episode. And of course, I love hearing from you. If you have your own question, something you're grappling with and could use some advice around, there is a contact form at sexgetsreal.com where you can submit anonymous questions if you'd like. And of course, you can also find out how to support the show on Patreon. Bianca and I are off to talk about yumminess for all the Patreon supporters. And thank you to, to you for listening. Thank you to you, Bianca, for joining this was super fun and like that hour flew by i know it so did thank you for having me this was great okay i will talk to everybody next week bye Bye, (laughs) y'all